Welcome to Student Affairs Now. My name is Glenn de Guzman. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm coming to you from Livermore, California, the ancestral homelands of the Ohlone people. And this is my first recording of 2021, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, we're going to be really shining light on the increasing stress and anxiety that many student affairs professionals are experiencing and really looking at ideas to support well-being. I've been hearing from our audiences and colleagues about how like, they'd like to hear more on burnout and wellness strategies as we just continue to respond to the myriad of issues that we've just experienced in 2020, whether it's anti-Blackness, COVID, the election, civil unrest, it just goes on and on and on, and it's continuing into 2021. And to help shed that light, I'm excited to be joined by a panel of administrators, researchers and influencers really just to talk story on this topic more. What is their research telling us and what we can as a profession be better at to better understand and really identify generous solutions to support ourselves, our colleagues, and even for me personally, lessons that I oftentimes take home to my family and friends. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in alongside or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. Our mission is to have our conversations make a contribution to the field and restore it to our student affairs profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesday. You can find us at studentaffairsnow.com, where we're also growing our list of archived episodes, and that's where it sits, so check it out. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, and I want to definitely thank our sponsors, um, Stylus Publishing is proud to be one of the sponsors of Student Affairs Now podcast. You can browse their student affairs, diversity, professional development titles at styluspub.com. And for limited time, use the promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at StylusPub. I'd like to start by having the panels introduce themselves. Um, so let's go ahead and have them share a little bit about their work, scholarship, and if, if, if relevant, their doctoral pursuits, and in general, that's really tied to today's topic. So um, let's go ahead and start um, with the person I've known the longest, uh, Dr. Jason Lynch. Jason. Oh, well, thanks, Glenn. Um, I'm super excited to be here. Hi, friends out in the student affairs world. Um, I'm Dr. Jason Lynch. If you interact with me, just call me Jason. That's fine. I um, am an assistant professor of higher education at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, but I actually live right outside of Raleigh in North Carolina. Um, I've been a practitioner in the field for about 10 years before I just switched over to the faculty and I've worked in a number of different areas, but where I knew Glenn from was my days at Berkeley in residence life. Um, <laughs> yeah, go Bears. Um, and so now I, uh, like I said, I'm an assistant professor. A lot of my research and scholarship and teaching really centers on issues of traumatic stress. Um, but I look at it from the angle of how traumatic stress impacts educators, whether that's K through 12 or in higher education, I have a particular focus on on the impact of traumatic stress on student affairs professionals. And so I'm super excited to get a chance to kind of talk about my own experiences and explore the experiences of um, my awesome friends and colleagues that are on the panel today. So again, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Let's go to Jamarco. Hello, everyone. My name is Jamarco Clark. I use he, him, he, him, he, him pronouns. Uh, I serve as the Director of Leadership and Engagement at the University of Iowa. I am also a second year doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse 
in the Student Affairs Administration Leadership Program. Uh, just about a month, I've got a big thing coming up. I will be defending my uh, dissertation proposal, and I'm working on a study titled Weight on My Shoulders, uh, Secondary Trauma and, and Its Effects on Black Men's Student Affairs Professionals. So my goal with that is to, number one, uh, and most importantly, build on the work that Dr. Lynch has done with, with looking at uh, secondary trauma and student affairs professionals, but really look at uh, the Black man as we do the work. And I was very intentional in, in using the, the phrase weight on my shoulders, uh, but I, I really want to look at and, and give Black men that platform to talk about how they're affected or impacted when they're working with uh, others and, and just looking at how their mental health and, and their personal and professional well-beings are uh, impacted by doing that work. So thank you. Definitely looking forward to hearing some of your research. Let's go to Leah. Hi, thanks, Glenn, for having me. Um, I'm born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. I currently serve at the University of Dayton as a community coordinator. I've worked in housing since I was an 18-year-old first-year RA, which um, was amazing, but also probably shouldn't have done that as a first-year student, but learned a lot. I am a full-time doctoral student at the University of Dayton in the Educational Leadership Program, and I hope to study secondary traumatic stress, um, specifically the possibility of recovery programming as a method to combat burnout. Amazing. And then let's go to Molly. Hi, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Molly Mastretta. I am assistant professor and the department chair for the Department of Counseling and Development at Slippery Rock University, which is in western Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Pittsburgh. I teach courses both in student affairs and in clinical mental health counseling. Um, my career path started and, and my interest in the issues of burnout and compassion fatigue actually started from my own personal experiences working in student affairs and particularly residence life, which I, for many of you who work in that area know that's a, that's a high burnout area. Um, and I became really interested once I became a faculty member and really focusing on issues of mental health, looking back and seeing how my own experiences with burnout and compassion fatigue really impacted my experience in, in student affairs and sort of wondered about why this aspect of our work lives was really never discussed in the workplace and with supervisors. So um, this is a, a sort of a, a passion of mine. And, um, and recently I had the opportunity to co-write a book with um, Al Allison Dubois and the book's called Overcoming Burnout and Compassion Fatigue. And it focuses on the roles of administrators in education. And that was published by Rutledge this past year. Outstanding. Molly, let's just stay with you and um, okay. let's talk about this book that you authored. And it really is about self-care for educators. And, and I'm really interested in this uh, topic of um, compassion fatigue and, and burnout. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more and what does it mean and how does it apply to student affairs practitioners? So um, let me start with burnout because you sort of have to take this as burnout as the foundation for developing compassion fatigue later on. So burnout in its most essential form is basically too much work and not enough resources. Whether those resources are time, finance, um, personnel, um, it's, it's basically over, being overworked. And that produces uh, both a, a, a physical response, um, a, a mental response, and even an emotional response. And so there's a couple things that I think we as student affairs professionals sort of come to the field with that predisposes us to burnout. 
One, we have a tendency to make our life really a lot about our work. For some of us, that's really hard because we live where we work. But we also see this as, as a passion, as a calling, as a, a true vocation for us. And so we, we tend to struggle with creating boundaries between our personal selves and our professional selves. And that predisposes us to burnout. Also, we tend to have a high expectations of our own performance. Uh, we're people who don't like to make mistakes, who feel like we need to do right by our students and our, our coworkers all the time. And that adds additional pressure. We also feel like we're never allowed to make mistakes. We want to feel like that uh, the people we work with are satisfied by the jobs that we do. And, and that amount of pressure that we put on ourselves increases the likelihood that we can develop burnout. So oftentimes, because we are being asked to do more with less, more and more in this profession, uh, the pressures have really been compounded on us as professionals in the field. And so when, we, when I talk to people in the field, basically what they describe to me is a chronic sense of stress all the time. And what happens is when you're chronically stressed, um, you're less able to uh, be resilient in, in the face of adversities that you experience in the workplace. And so when you encounter, and in the case of compassion fatigue, the prime ingredient is trauma. When you have been exposed to other people's trauma uh, through student stories that they tell you about things of their own past, that's called secondary traumatic stress. And when you add burnout with secondary traumatic stress, that's when you start to experience what's called compassion fatigue. And where burnout tends to be more of a mental and physical exhaustion, a short-term way to think about is compassion fatigue is that emotional exhaustion. And, and that is where you have been so overwhelmed by dealing with other people's trauma and aren't able to process that in a healthy way, that's when you begin to experience all sorts of symptoms. They can be physical, they're mostly emotional, but that's where you see it beginning to impact your work abilities. Maybe you're experiencing chronic absenteeism because you're sick more often, or you just aren't able to emotionally uh, function at work at the levels you used to. And that would be described as compassion fatigue. That's really relevant. I mean, as a person in residential mm -hmm. life, I'm experiencing other people's um, exhaustion and it's translating yeah. to Leah, you're in a similar boat. You, you, you're a community coordinator. How do you see compassion fatigue and burnout play, play out in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that I've served living in since I was 18 years old, which has been a long time. Um, I'm in my last semester of my last live-in position. We have a four-year cap in this role. So um, I know Dr. Lynch and I've talked a little bit about getting out of housing and something different, but to Molly's point, um, especially with my role as a community coordinator, I work with upper division students and they live in a neighborhood. So they live in houses and apartments and they are um, expected to live as adults, which can be challenging for college age students. So for me, I see a lot of the compassion fatigue, that emotional response when it comes to serving on call for students that often don't want to reach out for help, but need help or their friends call on their behalf or their friends see something on Instagram or social media that gives them questionable, uh, gives them concern. Um, but then I think the burnout comes from the, the response to student behavior. So working where I live and especially being in housing, we hear conduct cases. So it's the repeated 
conversations with my students about decision making that they are fully aware is not appropriate um, to our standards are theirs. And it's just the constant um, conversations can can lead to a little burnout when it comes to um, the repeated um, expectations I'm telling students because they're learning. Um, we have a safety net for a reason, but it does sometimes get to a point where I can feel that physical exhaustion, especially working from home with the office chair that probably wasn't the best choice to buy from Office Depot. <laughs> Love it. It's doing its job, but um, I think it starts to wear and tear for, for sure on me in that role. Leah, can I ask a follow-up question? Um, you know, in, you're working with upper division students. Do you see, um, uh, do you see a, a big profound difference working with upper division versus uh, working with, let's say, newer students? Oh, absolutely. Um, upper division students, the ones I work with, they know the expectations. They are fully aware of what the email says and they choose to often ignore it or kind of say, oh, I wasn't really sure that applied to me. I think when I've worked with first year students, they are extremely aware of that. They've read the email four times, printed it out. Their mom had told them to read it. Um, upper division students like to test the waters because they maybe have already seen someone in conduct or they've already kind of seen what it could look like if they do um, find themselves being held accountable for their behavior. So they are, I think, a little bit um, quicker to say, I'll try it out and see what happens, um, which can be frustrating, but I also know that they are aware of that too. So it makes for a hearty conversation. It just makes for some frequent hearty conversations. Thank you. Let's turn to Jason. Jason, I know that we've talked about this before, actually, as we've worked in the past. And, and I'm curious to know and, um, and have you speak on this concept of emotional stress and labor and really it's intersection with student affairs professionals. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, so um, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Carrie Klein at California State University Long Beach. She and I just published a chapter in Margaret Sally's book around creating sustainable careers in student affairs. And our chapter is about emotional labor and well-being in student affairs. And I think it goes really hand in hand with what um, both Leah and Dr. Mistretta were talking about and, and sort of the, their work. Um, I think that the, the kind of kind of clear the air about like emotional labor the the the, the high and low of, of what you're talking about there is sort of this mis mismatch of kind of what's going on internally and like your ability to kind of check your face or check your physical physical manifestations of that um to be able to please or respond to those around you and what's deemed appropriate by whoever is around you right whether that's a supervisor or your organization or your peers or the student or whoever um, the term emotional labor was actually coined back in the 80s by Arlie Hochschild. Um, she uh, published a book called The Managed Heart, um, and her research is really about understanding um, the gendered perspective of emotional labor and how in di different professional environments there's different um, expectations or, or different differentiated expectations for women and how they were engaging in emotional labor in different ways um, than were expected by men. Um, and since then, the, the, there's definitely been that continuation of the gendered approach, but they've also talked about the racialized approach to, to emotional labor um, as well and, and, and other um, sort of identity groups in that way. But for the way we kind of talked about it within the context of our chapter, um, and the book was through this idea of burnout, compassion, fatigue, and, and traumatic stress, right, that the, um, student affairs professionals might experience. So we think about what Leo was just saying about um, your own call, you're doing, you have some of these um, maybe less than fun student conduct hearings, but then perhaps you were having to bounce right back from that. Um, you might be doing that one hour and the next hour you have to go into a department meeting where you're expected to be all happy chappy and lovey-dovey and do your, your warm fuzzy up and downs. Um, and that's emotional 
emotional labor. Like I'll say, I think the not to not to date our our conversation right now, but we're recording this on the day that the riots happened at the Capitol, and I'll say like it's 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 evening, like. Uh, I really enjoy being with my colleagues here, but I'm engaging in emotional labor right now, right? Like I'm angry and frustrated and scared and all these other things, but I'm putting on my game face to 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 share um to share the share of myself and, and and my work with um with these other folks. And so I think that the kind of sum up with the and connecting this back to to some of the other work around traumatic stress, like um, emotional labor has been shown um, to correlate with higher levels of things like secondary trauma, burnout, and even the types of emotional labor have been shown to differentiate in different ways or correlate in different ways to those concepts. So for instance, on the you have this idea of surface level acting, which is a type of emotional labor where what you feel on the inside is completely different than what you are displaying on the outside. Um, and then there's this idea of deep acting where it's like you're you're conjuring up a like warm fuzzy thought so you can display a warm fuzzy face. Um, and then you have sort of this idea of like real acting, right? Of like living out authentically in your in your expressions and how you're behaving as as to what you're feeling on the inside. And so the the further you get away from that authentic self, um, the more likely you are to experience burnout or some of those negative ramifications. Thank you, Jason. You know, I, I and that's I'm glad you raised that because you know obviously we are filming um, this and recording this on uh, on on what has been a very interesting day, and this is the end of the day. And and putting on that game face has been um, definitely something that I've been doing all day. And and it is taxing, and it is um, it is impactful, particularly for many uh, folks who may also be coming from different lived experiences and personal experiences. And so, Jamarco, I want to build off of that a little bit. Um, and, and really talking about um, this emotional stress and labor, really this this um, and, uh, this game face, often um, times that we put on. And really, I'd like to hear more about maybe your research around the experiences of Black male student affairs professionals and what type of emotional stress and labor challenges or secondary trauma or game face sure. put on um, um, as as student affairs professionals. Absolutely, and I, I appreciate that that both you and Dr. Lynch used the word game face, used the phrase game face, because and from my perspective and, and my experiences as a black man working in the field, it's always having that game face on. So it's like, it's, it's always on. And, and that's, that's really, it comes from the tenets of, of men in general, not supposed to show emotion, uh, not supposed to, you know, show how you're really feeling. And I, you couple that with working in student affairs. And again, as a black man working in student affairs, I think a lot of times like using today as an example, you know, there's there's some people out there that that are very pleased with with the the developments of, of things that are happening, whereas you know there's there's some who who aren't and and I think when you when you're dealing with that and working in, in the field of student affairs, you're gonna have some students who are pleased with it and some who aren't. So what student affairs teaches us is that as student affairs professionals, we're supposed to keep it you know middle of the road. Uh, keep our game face on and be able to be supportive of both sides or be accepting and, and hearing of, of both sides. So again, as a black man working in student fair, the, the game face is always on for a lot of different reasons. Um, and the work that, that I do, uh, I just like, uh, you know, Leah and, and Molly, my introduction into what all this was came from experiences in residence life. So my interest in, in the topic comes from a, a student death experience. So that, and that really, uh, made me take a step back and look like, look at you know what does mental health really mean to me, and, and what is my what does my mental health mean to me? And uh, prior to that, never really had a lot of conversation about it. But that experience made me really focus on it and understanding the traumas that were associated with that, or 
working in working in residence life and responding to on-call situations where you've got a student who uh, they've had something really horrible happen at home or they had something really horrible happen on campus and just again being a black man who a lot of folks look at you to be strong you have to be strong in those moments even though it's really eating you up on the inside or eating you up to the core uh, you just got to be able to, to withstand and, and, and persist and be able to show show that and I think that's also uh, evident and true for for a lot of my peers who who are also black men uh, working in student affairs it's just that that foundational and, and that uh, internal uh, developments that we have growing up of of not showing that emotion and 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 being you know always being on and and student affairs professionals as a whole do that they're always on uh, and and I'll talk about you know the the urgency that that comes with that and understanding what that really means uh, I, th I think the last thing that I would add when looking at the secondary trauma and and looking at the emotional stress uh, and looking at everything that, that that's happening in our world it's so cyclical so. At a, at a certain point, you've got to make sure you're being protective of your mental well-being and, and deciding how much will I let this impact me because it's going to continue to happen, you know, and so you've got to be make sure you're taking care of yourself uh, and, and, and being intentional and in, in what you choose to indulge in. And I, I acknowledge that not everyone has an opportunity or has the right uh, or privilege to be able to do so, but when, when you can exercise that, I think it's really important. No, that that's wonderful insight. I, I think about a lot of what you said, I feel like it also trans transferable to other um, under um, our marginalized populations or uh, first generation professionals or just folks who are really like oftentimes putting on a game face of, and, mm -hmm. and you know, maybe experiencing some level of imposter syndrome of, and how does that um, play out in how we carry ourselves and where, you know, I might put on this game face, but deep down inside it's, 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 me up right so really great insight and let's stay let's stay on um this a little bit um but maybe expand it to just reflecting on 2020 i mean obviously so much has happened this past year and it continues to trickle into 2021 um jason i'm going to start with you to kick us off and maybe a little bit on the research you've done you recently conducted and completed a covid19 and tra traumatic stress survey can you tell us more about the study what did you find what did you discover yeah, so back in the, um, it was like August, September, I uh, uh, took sort of a national sample of, of different educators. The survey was really geared towards K through 12 and higher education um, educators, whether they were faculty, teachers, or administrators, staff, student affairs professionals. Um, for the purposes of our conversation, I'll kind of focus on what I found with student affairs professionals, but out of, we, we had almost 2,000 people take the survey and 400 of those were student affairs professionals. Um, and so I was looking at different, uh, what we call trauma responses, right? So there's, there's different behaviors that individually might not, um, might not be, be considered a trauma response, right? But taken together, you can kind of tell whether or not somebody might be having a, a, a response to a traumatic situation, right? There are things like lack of sleep, um, strong feelings like anger, feel, fear, guilt, hypervigilance, um, this need to be perfect, or grandiose sort of expectations of themselves and peers and things like that, right? Um, and so in looking at the survey, like I uh, uh, had people self-report about these different sort of trauma responses um, and about their overall mental health. And what was interesting is that 80%, particularly within the, or talking about the student affairs professionals, 80% of student affairs professionals reported that their school's response to COVID-19 um, had negatively impacted their, their mental health. Um, so out of this 400, nearly 400, right, it was 80% of those um, said that. 
And then whenever you're looking at sort of the different trauma responses, right, some of the top ones were fear, guilt, anger, um, lack of sleep, exhaustion, uh, hypervigilance, uh, kind of this idea, hypervigilance is like kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop or this constant feeling that something bad's going to happen, right? But what I found that was interesting in comparing some of these results, and this was actually true whether you looked at K through 12 or faculty or sort of student affairs professionals, is that sort of the higher up you go in an organization, the um, there's sort of this detachment. So like the the people that are frontline, student affairs professionals, faculty members, teachers, uh, student services staff in K through 12, right? They are having a, a significantly more uh, uh, rates or magnitude of, of trauma. Uh, response behaviors and senior administrators as so sort of the further out you go in this bubble, um, the less they're experiencing that. And I would definitely attribute that to the fact that you're 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 doing you're working a lot with students. There's a lot more pressure. It feels like um, in some of those situations. But um, one other thing, and I'll <laughs> I'll be quiet because I know I'm, I'm talking a lot at this point, but. When you're looking at different predictors of what these trauma responses look like um, during the COVID-19 crisis, one of the things, the number one predictor was um, a student affairs professional sense of, of psychological safety in their workplace. So the less psychological safety they felt, the, um, the greater the rate of trauma response that they were reporting. But what was interesting on top of that is I measured um, this construct of supervisor emotional maturity, and we can talk about that at some, at some point, but um, that was directly related to their sense of psychological safety. So if you think about this in sort of a, a structured way, um, your supervisor's response or modeling or whatever creates this sense of psychological safety for you, which in turn gives you space to um, to either kind of take care of yourself, to not to kind of they're, you're kind of taking their lead, um, or their their behaviors are impacting how you're 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 sort of able to function. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's a few of the a few of the things that I found. I'm still kind of digging into the data. That's wonderful. Keep digging because yeah. it makes me want to ask some follow up questions. So it, what I'm hearing from you, Jason, is that um, newer staff are looking. You know, newer staff are looking to their supervisors um, and, and, and trying to get a sense of how they are leading um, and, and, and are they really understanding the psychological um, safety concerns that they may be having. And, and um, that can help or hinder um, um, people's ability to address or uh, to, um, to work through some of the emotional trauma they're experiencing. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, well, it's not just new professionals. For this sample, it was kind of everybody. So whoever had a supervisor, or whether it was their department chair, or they labeled as a supervisor or whatnot. However, what you bring up about new professionals is interesting because in a separate survey um, that I conducted um, a few years ago um, of student affairs professionals, the number, one of the top predictors of secondary traumatic stress was being in, was your sort of years of service. Or so being a new professional, you were a lot more likely to experience secondary traumatic stress in your job. And so I think the a, a common theme that is emerging between sort of the quantitative and qualitative information that I'm collecting is that there seems to be this sort of generational gap in understanding of what the student affairs role encompasses. And so you have sort of the old guard people that have been in the field for forever that are like, oh, like back in my day, like this is like, I had to deal with this remake conflict and it wasn't that hard. And whereas the new professionals now are like, we literally have people jumping out of buildings and that is like, how, how are we supposed to cope with that? Um, where, and, and so you have this sort of generational divide of like suck it up and keep going and the new people are like well we're dealing with worse things than you and have less resources so, um and then now there's this compounded issue of less empathy as well because like there's the the older folks are like well like, <laughs> like what are you going to do you know wow thank you jason let's let's start looking for solutions here so leah 
you know, I know that you've done research on secondary traumatic stress recovery practices really to limit the experiences of burnout. Can you share um, with our audience some recovery practices that you advise for student affairs professionals, especially, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about residential communities. Um, how do we do that? How do, how do leaders um, guide their staff to take care of themselves and their well-being? Absolutely. So I really got interested in the recovery practices after I took one of my independent studies. I created a recovery journal for my colleagues at Serve on Call. It was meant to be just a document that you can journal your experience. So what songs do you listen to when you're on call? What, what is your body respond? How does your body respond when you hear the duty phone ring, which for most of us is pure fear and panic. Um, I actually created one for our student staff this year that were new to working in housing residence life at the University of Dayton, especially because we're managing COVID. So I think for me, there's a few things that I've um, thought about, especially now that we're working from home more often. Um, I'm able to, in my campus housing, separate my workspace from my home space. I think that's really important. If I was in person still with our students, I would be able to do that with my office on campus. So I think that's really helpful to have a separate space for that to kind of give a break of where you put your energy and where you hold that stress. Um, I think it's, it's important to take time to recharge. I've always been conditioned from my graduate experience to say, if you have sick days, those are mental health days as well. So take a day, step away. A lot of institutions are doing more with less. So you can feel easily overworked um, and your plate might be, you know, a little bit more full than it usually is. So taking a day to recharge, turn your work phone off, turn off your emails. Um, I think it's equally important to mentor those graduate students and the undergraduate students if you are a full-time professional. Um, I know for a lot of graduate students I work with, they're not looking to be um, higher ed professionals long-term. So for a lot of them, it's just, I think, helpful to check in and say, how are you managing? A lot of them are taking a position in housing for the benefit of living for free. Um, but that comes with a lot of added work that does not separate the work from where you live. So I think just checking in with them. And I've been really um, excited this, this year so far to talk to my undergraduate student staff. A lot of them have been managing COVID um, from a high stress and high anxiety place, which I think makes sense. They're feeling a little responsible for their students' behavior. So for me, I think when it comes to that taking care of themselves piece, I try to talk to them about your students are gonna make decisions for themselves outside of what you um, have either shared with them or what your expectation of them is. Um, but even just saying like, take a step back too, because this might not be what you wanna do long-term either. So how do you manage that anxiety and your own personal safety around this virus um, and still do the work? And sometimes that just means having transparent one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and say, tell me how you're feeling and I, we can work through this together. Or coaching people out of the position if it feels like maybe this is too much to manage because at the end of the day, they're in school to be students and not to be student staff. So I think that's really important too for the undergraduate and graduate students to have that conversation. Wow, that's wonderful. I, you know, I'm hearing the, the list that you just went through and I'm thinking, my goodness, I could relate to so many and had, had to do several in, on the lighter side. And I, I don't, I guess it's not really lighter side, but just even the, the, um, the duty phone um, idea, right? So I know that I've changed the sound of my personal um, phone just because that ding just it's it just it's so impactful for me and how I just react and Absolutely. small things so let's keep going um, I'd like to keep um, hearing more Molly I know that you have a huge passion for um, working with new practitioners um, in a variety of educational settings what advice would you give um, knowing that the potential for burnout is there um, and and I think as a follow-up to that you know, I think uh, I like what Leah said about like mentoring our next generation of, of and future student affairs professionals differently. Do we need to prepare our student affairs professionals differently after what 
after 2020. Absolutely. Um, you know, 2020 has really been a year of crisis, right? And and that's that's what people are responding to. It's it's not just about the pandemic. It's about all sorts of upheaval in our communities, in our workplaces, in our homes, you know, in terms of maybe financial or, or health-related issues. And so I think people are really dealing, I mean, can, can legitimately call this a, a traumatic year <laughs> to live through. And so, you know, I think we're, we're all dealing with some level of trauma uh, based on this, what I'm calling the year of crisis. Um, I love Leah's list and on observations because I, I think they're so important. Oftentimes we tend to um, talk about burnout as if there's only one part of the equation in terms of preventing it and, 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 and lay a lot of responsibility with the individual, right? So if someone's burnout, then we say, well, they just weren't taking care of themselves. Or if they're experiencing compassion fatigue, they're just not as resilient, right? And, and that's, that's wrong because there is an, or there's, just as there's an individual piece, there's also an organizational responsibility here. And, and, and that's where I, I've, I tend to be hammering the most <laughs> uh, lately in, in terms of, of my responses to this. I think that we cannot, as a profession, continue to lay the responsibility, responsibility for this solely at the feet of individuals. And in that we, as a profession, need to promote um, healthy workplace environments and we need to push that our organizations be more responsive and more supportive for uh, individuals struggling with these types of issues. And, and so I think that means some very basic things. We need to ensure that everyone in, in our profession has adequate salary and time off. We have all worked in environments where you know, the, the, the going, the going phrase is, well, you know, this is student affairs. You're supposed to work 50 plus hours a week, or, you know, in the month of August, what is a day off even on Sundays? Right. And so we, we need to look closely at our culture and, and look at how we, I think, perpetuate a lot of this as well. I think as institutions and organizations, we can't keep expecting, particularly as Jason pointed out, our youngest and most vulnerable professionals to absorb the trauma that they do working on the front lines with students and provide no um, institutional mental health support for that. Um, I, I think we can't count on every institution in, in the United States or even outside the United States to ensure that there's an adequate mental health provision to their health plan so they can go seek the support that they need if they've experienced working with a student who's ex had high levels of trauma in their life. Um, I think beyond that, we also need to make sure that, as you were talking about, the mentorship of new professionals. One of the things that you see in the literature time and time again is the reason people leave the field and about some, you know, some research says as high as 50 to 60% of professionals within their first five years leave the field. And they point to the lack of good supervision. And I think as we've been asked to do more with less resources, what has fallen by the wayside is good supervision. We're expecting new professionals to jump into 
um, frontline roles with little in the way of orientation, little of the way of onboarding, and expect them to figure it out on their own and sort of absorb all these emotional impacts on their own. And I think we need to figure out a way to do some trauma-informed supervision to ensure that new staff are getting good supervision and that those supervisors are implementing um, things in the workplace, like self-care plans, helping staff establish meaningful and realistic boundaries between their personal and, and professional lives. And, and also making sure that the institutions that we're working in are providing meaningful and emotional supports. And, and that's a tough one because that's, that's going to be a huge uh, cultural change, not just for the profession, but also for the institutions we work in. That's outstanding insight. And speaking of good supervision, let's turn to Jamarco. Jamarco, in your professional role as a director of leadership and engagement, how do you feel, what do you feel our profession must do better to support professionals and find that, that balance? I think I think Molly just hit it all on the head. I think it's going to be a it's it's a cultural shift, uh, and and really, I mean I, I'm going to say this, but it, we've got to disrupt what we've known, uh, and especially in, in this environment that we're in. But the other thing that Molly said that really resonates with me is that trauma informed uh, piece, that trauma informed leadership, and we've talked about trauma on this call, and we've really got to come to grips with that and, and really understand what that means. I think that could vary institution to institution. Uh, earlier, I talked about that urgency and in, in, in student affairs, we, a lot of things that, that we come across are urgent for us, or at least we, we make them urgent. So really understanding what's urgent and what's not urgent, uh, understanding our emphasis on urgency, because what happens is when those new professionals come into the field, they're always seeing this urgency, this go, 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 especially in August, you know, they, they come in July, July is kind of smooth, you get the train, and then August is go, 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 everything is urgent. So, so me personally, I, uh, I think something that, that, that I'm really horrible at, uh, I, I practice, but I don't always preach it, but I love being on the go. I love working, you know, those 50 hours a week, but it, it's because that was, that was instilled into me right away. And it's something that, that I've kind of, uh, uh, base myself on but I've really worked with with my uh the folks who work work on my team to make sure that they're taking care of themselves that it's okay to take time away it's okay uh to to step away from the job you know if if it, if it gets to be too much throughout the course of a day and I think specifically through the time of COVID and and working from home it's really important uh, that that our uh, profession and that our folks who work in the field understand that we're at home working and we're not working at home. I think there's a very distinct dis difference there, and and especially through this pandemic. And who knows how long it'll be? Hopefully, you know, hopefully we get some sense of normalcy uh, soon. I have the 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 luxury and and great. I'm I'm really happy that I'm able to be in my office right now. And but I know not everyone has that. So going back to what Leah talked about, being able to find ways to to create. Uh, opportunities to separate yourself from from you know if you're working at, at your kitchen table all day you're not really providing yourself those opportunities so uh being able to do that and 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 the the profession and the, the leaders in the profession need to be able to communicate that uh effectively and, and clearly to our our professionals in the field and and then i think it also it's really important that our professionals uh have the the understanding that they can also create that for themselves i think that's really important and, and because it, you know it's going to go back to the to one of the things i said earlier again is being protective of your mental well-being that's very important uh and and i think i think those are the things that that we can do to be able to find that balance but also promote that balance 
uh, for our professionals in the field. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for taking us home. So let's wrap this up. This podcast, and this is sort of like the question that we always ask our panelists at the very end. This podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And during this conversation, uh, this wonderful conversation, what has bubbled to the top of your mind that has you pondering, questioning, um, maybe something you're excited about or something that's still troubling you now? Um, and I have to choose who goes first. <laughs> Jason, tag, you're it. I had a feeling that that was gonna <laughs> that was gonna happen. Thanks, Glenn. So I think the I think I have a couple things that like come to the top of mind. Like one is um, we talk about the different lenses that we've been lo looking at this idea of stress and burnout and trauma through with each each of our work. But I think that one of the ways that I really like to or, or one of the ways that I try to like argue for this uh, for the profession in general is through a sense of ethics, right? So you look at social work as a as a profession, you look at counseling as a profession, and you look at nursing as a profession. They all have statements of ethics about mental mental health and wellness for yourself and how that is a, an ethical imperative. Um, and while the NASPA ACPA competency document kind of toys around with that under their uh, professional uh, ethics competency. They toy around a little bit. It's never directly stated. And when you think about it, like if you were suffering from burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary traumatic stress, whether you're a new professional all the way up through the senior level professional, you're not making decisions in a, um, in a, in a rational way sometimes, right? Because if you're kind of it, uh, one of the classic trauma responses is the idea of black and white dualistic thinking. So if you're not able to embrace complexity and be creative in your, your decision-making process, you're harming everybody around you in the organization, whether it's the students, whether it's the people you're supervising, your peers, and so it really is an ethical imperative. And so I think the last thing that kind of bubbled up for me is that I often feel like we have a lot of these conversations. And ever since I was a new professional way back in the day, these conversations have been happening. But I don't think anything's going to change until like our national organizations and people that are leaders in the field are really going to step up and start talking about this. And I think that in the form of grant money and the form of recognizing these things through workshops or institutes, um, I think that, that this like we're going to keep having these conversations until like Jamarco said, there's some major disruption in the field. And so I think that's, that's sort of what's on my mind. Thank you, Jason. I heard Jamarco. So let's go to Jamarco. Uh, I think, yeah, tag I'm it. I think for me, it, it's really that idea of like, I, I hope to have a long career in student affairs and I'm, I'm a person who I went to college and I wanted to be an early childhood educator. So I wanted to be a pre-K teacher. And I learned of student affairs because of my people who did the work that I do uh, when I was in college. And I think it's really important that that we're we're taking care of our field. I think we need to take care of it. And, and that's going to come from what uh, Dr. Lynch just shared. You know, uh, people have got to speak out and talk about what it means to to save. I don't want to say save the the profession, but to really give the profession the the respect and the uh, or the professionals in the profession the the respect and the uh just the the things that that we've earned you know from all the hard work uh our work is about the students uh and 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 that's always going to be the forefront that's always going to be very important however i think it's also important that we're we're taking care of the folks who are doing the work and and that needs to happen at at, at a lot of different levels uh, and, and circling it back uh, before I have someone else be, be tagged, that trauma-informed leadership and, and coupling that with some trauma-informed care, I think that could be very vital in, in, in taking steps forward. So, thank you. Very well said. Um, Jamarco, I'm going to stay out of trouble. You get to choose. Who, who I get to choose next. I'm going to go with Molly. Oh, thanks, Jamarco. 
as we've been talking, something occurred to me. So my colleagues and I have been playing this game over the course of the pandemic. And the game is sort of what will stay after all of this is over. And one of the things that we vote for is, you know, we do a lot of things, particularly in the field of student affairs, just because that's the way they've always been done. And, and if there's a silver lining of the year 2020, I hope it's that we have disrupted ourselves enough to really ask ourselves the hard questions of what needs to stay, but what, what can fall away? What is no longer essential? What did this year show us that wasn't essential? And maybe what we learned this year is we don't need to, we don't need half the meetings, the populator calendars. You know, maybe we don't need half of the programs we run just because we've always run them. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful um, that maybe this is the time for us as a profession to really reckon with some of this because we realize we cannot continue the way we have been. Wow, I, that's a wonderful game. Um, and I, that's like a, <laughs> that's a podcast topic right there. What you'll stay. Leah, you get the last word. Wow, well, I think I'll have to quote Molly here. I think since uh, the year of crisis has come and gone and now we're entering another one, it seems like, I think that for me, I feel hopeful that now that we have a shared experience, we've all lived through COVID-19, I think that, that gives us um, the ability to talk about trauma a little bit differently. Um, when I first met Dr. Lynch, I talked to him after a student death and I was like, I don't feel like I should have trauma. My friends that responded should, and he corrected me that, you know, it's, it, can, it compiles and it, it's there. It's, it might not be me responding, but it's me talking to the students who are impacted. And um, I think for me, now that we've all experienced the pandemic, we now have that end to talk about trauma with all of our colleagues. I think before it became our individual narratives were ours for, for, um, for the sharing. But now we can say we've all lived through it. We've all felt the panic. We've all seen Target with empty shelves of no toilet paper. We've all seen folks um, trying to get tested. Um, we've seen what that looks like. So how do we use that to say, how will we talk about trauma for everyone knowing that we all at least have this experience in, in common? So I'm feeling hopeful. Well said. We've run out of time. I want to thank this panel for your time today in this episode of Student Affairs Now. So Dr. Jason Lynch at Appalachian State University, the award at the University of Dayton, Dr. Marco Clark in the University of Iowa, and Dr. Molly Mistretta at Slippery Rock University. If you're interested in contacting any of our panelists, please go to our website and get to their social media account. While you're there, please subscribe to SA Now newsletter. You can visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Definitely check out our growing archives. Um, please subscribe to the podcast. Invite others to subscribe, share on social, leave a five-star review. You can find us on social, retweet, share, and like. Reach out to me as well if you'd like to hear more on topics. This episode was because we heard from our audience. So again, my name is Dr. Glenn DeGuzman. Thanks again to today's guests and to everyone who is watching and listening See you next time.